When people talk about the ministry of Jesus, it's really easy, you know, just to focus on Jesus' miracles. He did some amazing things, things the world had never seen before or ever seen since. But I think one of the most fascinating um, and exciting, I guess, aspects of Jesus' ministry was his teaching style. Um, some of his teaching, some of the things he said was just revolutionary and provocative. It was so direct and succinct. You know, think of the message of the Beatitudes, something which would have transformed the way that the people hearing it would have understood the world. Or the way that Jesus would often deflect the Pharisees' attempts to ensnare him in some controversy and instead pose a damning question back at them, revealing the true meaning of what it meant to worship God and exposing their hypocrisy. But it's perhaps the way Jesus often taught in parables that is most distinctive, I think, about Jesus' ministry. You know, like any good teacher, Jesus varies his, his teaching style. He changes it up depending on the audience and the subject matter. There are 37 parables of Jesus recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Luke records 27 of them, 14 of them exclusively. And yet we need to probably ask the question. Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 5th of March, 2023, 11 o'clock service. Tim Davis speaking in the series, Parables in Luke, The Great Banquet. Question, what is a parable? Um, I was thinking beginning this talk by asking if anyone could explain the difference between a metaphor and an analogy and a simile and a parable, but when I realised I couldn't actually make sense of it even when I'm reading like the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition, I thought, no, let's not do that. Uh, but essentially, you know, a parable, it's a short story used to illustrate an instructive lesson or principle. And Jesus often used them to help those listening to him get an understanding of his mission and the kingdom of God. Now, this, this idea, the kingdom of God, may well have been a concept that, to many of them, just didn't make sense. But to help them grasp the idea and to understand what was required to you know, gain entry, as it were, to the kingdom of God, Jesus used these parables, these metaphorical analogies, to put it in language that could be easier to understand and to visualize what Jesus was describing. And that's what today's talk is about, sort of. You know, the parable of the great banquet. And in this parable, we see Jesus laying out the reality of who would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Now, the occasion at which Jesus told his parable was a dinner at a prominent Pharisee's house. Uh, now, despite Jesus generally not having you know, much of a kind word to say about the Pharisees, he actually dined at their houses a few times. Um, you know, they saw him as a fellow teacher and rabbi. Perhaps they would have invited him to listen to him or check him out, or maybe they fancied pitting themselves against him in a contest of who knows the law the best and interprets it the best. Um, but on this occasion, it seemed it was very much a social event. And Jesus starts to notice how the numerous guests start to jockey for the best positions at the table, sit next to the host, sit next to the person of influence, all in an effort to advance their own social status and influence. And Jesus uses this scene before him to teach those before him about the need not to try and elevate themselves, but to humble themselves 
and to care specifically for society's outcasts. He tells them, you know, if you're hosting a dinner such as this one, don't invite just the people who you know and like and who can someday you know, repay the favour or maybe help you advance your position in society. No, instead, you should be inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Because if you do that, then you'll be truly blessed. You know, even though these people can't ever repay the favour to you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The kingdom of God will be yours. And I can imagine the awkward silence that probably followed when Jesus said those words. And one of the guests there, perhaps in an effort to break this awkward silence, pipes up with, um, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Now, it's not explicitly stated why he says those words, but I think he may have done it to you know, try and rapidly move on from this uncomfortable lesson that Jesus had just delivered. He may have been thinking to himself, like, none of us here, and literally none of us are actually going to host a dinner party for a bunch of lame beggars, are we? No. Killed the vibe big time, Jesus. We need to get the energy going up, don't we? So I think he tries to make everyone feel happy again. You know, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Blessed are us. God's chosen ones. You know, we're the ones going to sit at the kingdom of God and his feast. We're truly blessed. Cheers. Let's get this party started. Now, way to go in missing the point. So Jesus tells a more challenging parable. Chapters 14 to 19 in Luke contain a whole series of events and teachings to Jesus where we can see God redefining the understanding of who his people were. Since those who are confident that they were automatically in God's kingdom will not in fact be part of it unless they respond to the message of Jesus and the gospel. Jesus tells this parable in response to the man's comment about those who will eat and be blessed at the feast of the kingdom of God. You know, the speaker assumed that it was him and his esteemed friends and fellow diners there. But would they? Would they be? Jesus' point in this parable is that the guest list for the kingdom will look a little different from those that the dinner guests imagined. He tells the story of a great banquet being prepared and the host had sent out an invite to many people. It was customary to send out an invite to an event um, sometime in advance. But the actual timing was always going to be dependent on when everything was finally ready, all the food prepared, everything set out and laid. And so when that finally happened, then and only then, would the host send his servants out to gather all the invited guests. Anyway, you'd have thought these guests would have been excited. You'd have thought that this has been in their diary for days, weeks, months maybe even. But one by one, they all give an excuse as to why they can't suddenly attend. I've just bought a field. I've just bought some oxen. I've just got married. Now, these may seem possibly bizarre examples to, for Jesus to give, or maybe even quite valid ones. But actually, these scenarios would have made sense to the guests at the dinner, these esteemed, learned Pharisees. It reminded them of the reasons that have been given in Deuteronomy chapter 20 for why a man might be excused military service. Now, has anyone got a new house and you've not just lived in it? 
not going to send you to battle, go and enjoy it. Have you just planted a vineyard, but you've not had a chance to enjoy it? Okay, you can be excused. You go and enjoy that. You just got married. Congratulations. The front line is no place for you. Get back to the home. Now, these were important activities for a civil life to maintain that. But why is Jesus ripping on these examples to the guests at the diner, at the dinner? Just consider it. Well, I bought a field and I must go and see to it. Who buys a field without looking at it? Imagine you're trying to buy a house. You'd go and look around it before buying it. I've just bought some oxen. I've got to go and try them out. You didn't try it before you bought them? Would you go and buy a car without having never driven it or looked at it? Of course you're going to try the oxen out. You're going to buy them and risk that bench of lame, diseased oxen turning up. You've lost your money. I've just got married. Congratulations. But did you not know that when you accepted the invitation to this banquet ages ago, that it was going to clash with when you were getting married? All of the guests had accepted the invitation to the banquet. The host had arranged all of the food, got everything ready, and excitedly sent his servants out to say, yes, come, let's celebrate together, my friends. And yet all of a sudden, the guests were cancelling at the last minute, with fairly flimsy excuses when you think about it. Now, of course, Jesus isn't actually just telling a story for the sake of telling a story about a wedding feast. He's talking about the kingdom of God and the original invitation to the Jewish people. But they were rejecting God's invitation by rejecting Jesus. Jesus was trying to tell them, look, I'm here to collect you all for God's celebration. And yet they were refusing to attend. And so in their stead, God was going to fill the kingdom with the people, the Pharisees, didn't think belonged. In our lives, we can easily let ourselves get distracted, I think, and ignore the big things in life. Focus on the little stuff, the easier stuff, the stuff which just feels comfortable. As my wife uh, will testify, I'm a dreadful procrastinator when it comes to things like you know, writing sermons. Um, and it may be a sudden comfort to her to know that before we got married, I was just as bad. It probably won't be any comfort to her. Um, but you can imagine a typical Saturday lunchtime when I'm kind of, you know, just back from university in my early 20s, still with my parents and enjoying a Saturday morning lie-in. And mum would shout up the stairs, like, lunch is ready, I'm serving. And I'd say, yeah, I'm just coming. I'd reply as I continue to finish the level of the video game on which I'm playing. It's on the table. Yeah, I'm just coming as I step into the shower. It's getting cold. Be right there as I dry myself off, as I brush my teeth, as I moisturize my face, as I put on my clothes, as I eventually hurry downstairs. I'm sorry I'm five, 35 minutes late. And Who's that strange, bedraggled-looking person sitting in my place with an empty plate? Why is he wiping his mouth with my napkin and getting up and leaving? Okay, that last bit didn't actually ever happen. Uh, but should I have been surprised if mum had no, got exasperated and gone, I told you lunch was coming. And you, you knew what it was going to be. And so I'm going to give it to someone else more deserving. Someone who really value and benefit this more. Fortunately, my mum was far more tolerant uh, and forgiving of my laziness, busyness, inconsiderateness, delete as appropriate, uh, than she needed to be. Um, but you know, what about when we face the big things in life? Can we just as easily find reasons not to respond straight away. 
to ignore it? Can we somehow try and justify our actions, you know, saying, I'm just too busy now to think about it? It's easy to overanalyze the parable that we've read, focusing on the reasons why the guests couldn't come and rejected the original invitation. But the real message is about who the host then invites to the banquet. We've just finished a sermon series looking at outsiders coming to God. And it's fitting, I think, that this parable kicks off this new series, acting as a kind of bridge between the two series. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those who are on the margins of society, those who wouldn't have dreamt of ever being invited to a banquet at a prominent Pharisee's house. The outsiders. These were the people to whom the invitation of the kingdom of God was being made. What happens is that those who rejected the invitation are eventually left out of the banquet and were replaced. Their seat was taken. No, don't assume that if you don't respond now to God's invitation, that you'll be able to respond later. There is no guarantee that will be the case. A missed celebration is one that is missed forever. Similarly, Jesus' invitation to us is not without an expiration date. We should respond to salvation when the opportunity arises. Fortunately, of course, we're all here in church today, aren't we? Hopefully, having responded to God's invitation of salvation. But then I think reading this parable gives a new calling and meaning to us today. The poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind are actively sought out. They didn't just randomly wander in from the streets and the lanes and the countryside and wherever it was they dwelt. No, the host said to his servants, go and get these people. Give the invitation to them, compel them almost to come in. The poor and oppressed among the Jewish people would have been visually in sight, but also the Gentiles. This was not what the Pharisees thought the invitation to the kingdom of God was for. And we should see ourselves like the servants in the parable. We have a calling to bring a marvelous message of invitation and acceptance and forgiveness to all. We have got to take that role seriously and urge the invitation wherever we are. This is not a take it or leave it task. It's a mission, a mission of the host of God that we should fulfill. So sometimes do you feel if God is compelling you to do something, whether he is calling you to salvation or calling you to specific work, do you feel we can actually really reject that invitation? It's true to say in the fairly feeble excuses when you think of it, of the original guests at the banquet, I can hear my own kind of responses to God in the, over the course of my life. I'm too busy to deal with that now, God. I haven't got the time. I'll talk to my friend about you another time, even though tonight would have been perfect, but no, another time. Or you know, actually, God, I'm doing something really worthy, so that kind of balances it out, so I don't need to worry about this kind of bit which I think you're asking me to do, because this is cool, yeah? No. We may try and convince ourselves that what we are doing is noble or right or correct, but I'm afraid that any excuse is really just insulting to God, isn't it? 
We can sometimes get so focused on the little things, so thinking that, no, that's what we've got to sort out first of all. Too fearful of the big things in life, going, no, let's not do that now. Let's, let's put that off to another time. It can't, nothing can be that important that God's calling me to, surely. And maybe if I just sort out all the other little stuff, and then I'll have time to focus on it. But it doesn't always work that way. Uh, as we've been thinking of Jesus changing his teaching style, I thought it was time for a good old-fashioned visual illustration. So here's life. And here are the big things in my life. And here are all the little things in my life. Can I fit them all into my life? How do I do that? Well, it's easy to just quickly look at the little things. So I put, try and deal with all the little stuff. Surely, it's out the way. It's tidy, it's done. I can then focus on the big things in my life. And they'll all fit in. Won't they? Squeeze it. No, right. It doesn't quite work. Maybe I need to try again. Did my approach. Focusing on the little things. Not quite work. By the way, if anyone can tell me if this is a parable or an, an, an analogy or a metaphor that I'm doing, that'd be great. I'm just going to call it visual illustration. Um, at the 9.30 service, someone on the sound desk when they saw my sermon script said, oh, visual illustration. We're going to talk like, about a vegan feast. I said, no, but there will be lentils. No, when we're trying to sort out our life, our loving, godly lives, it's the big things in life, the stuff which involves God, that he calls us to do that we deal with first of all. That can sometimes feel scary, it can sometimes feel too much. But fortunately, God is not letting us do things on our own. He's there. We pray to him. We say, God, help me. And so we deal with the big things. And when we've done that, we've committed them to God, we find that there is a much easier way to deal with the little things in life. And it all fits. I'm so glad that worked. Not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. There's no second chance, says God. No, we don't get to say, not today, God. No, I'll, I'll see if I can accept your invitation, your offer of something to me another day. Come on. No, we have already been given a second chance. The anonymous guest at the dinner, I think, actually says the most important thing in this whole passage. When he says, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. How true that is. It's just not who he expected it to be. Will it include you? Will it include the people you know who have yet to receive God's invitation? During Lent, we often talk about this idea of journeying with Jesus as his ministry builds towards its climax in Jerusalem at Easter. And so in this month, as we spend the uh, next few Sundays looking at a selection of Jesus' parables that he taught on his way to Jerusalem, let's journey with him. Let's explore why he told a certain parable. Let's try and examine the message that he was conveying in it. And let's consider what it means to us today.